I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a bigger story than sports. It's a story, it's a story that transcends sports. It's got this great hook and a central figure who was, you know, a celebrity in, in the demimonde of sports. Um, but it's such a bigger story. How could you not want to tell it? Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. All right, we are going to try to make this work. As I am taping this podcast, there is a major internet outage in Canada uh, with the telecom provider Rogers, which is a significant one across the country. So um, I am uh, doing my best through a through my uh, through my U.S. cell phone here to try to make this one uh, make this one work. So apologies if the sound quality isn't as great, uh, but we're we're going to try to make it happen and. Thank you to Patrick for uh, for all his hard work all the time. Um, this story that we're about to get into is just totally fascinating. The guests are ESPN's Russell Danello. He's a longtime producer and director at ESPN. And Jeremy Schapp, uh, who I think many of you know, longtime host and reporter at ESPN. And these two have combined for an episode of E60 which will debut on Tuesday, July 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on ESPN. It is just a fascinating story. The center of this story is a guy named Barry Bremen. He was a cult figure from the late 1970s known as the Great Imposter. And what he did is he pulled off pranks, including crashing the All-Star game dressed as a New York Yankee, literally shagged fly balls pregame, played nine holes at the U.S. Open, impersonated a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Maybe his most famous sports one was he dressed in a Kansas City Kings uniform and got onto the floor of the 1979 NBA All-Star Game. He's literally shooting layups with Moses Malone, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Dr. J. That stunt landed him on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was a big guest on David Letterman in the in the early 80s. So again, this guy is a, um, you know, he's sort of a cult figure at the time. Again, to think of what he did in a 2022 construct is absurd because the guy would be tackled on the field immediately, probably get the shit beat out of him to, to be blunt. But uh, I mean, again, it's a different time, pre-9-11, pre-Monica Sella stabbing. And so he was a very a very happy-go-lucky guy too. So people liked him. But um, again, just a, a slice of 1970s and 1980s. So Barry Bremen dies of cancer in 2011. And you'd think that the story sort of ends there and, you know, is an interesting sort of sports figure. But in many ways, it's just the beginning of the story. So I'm going to bring in Jeremy Schapp and, and Russell Danello to, uh, to take us on what happens next. And Russell, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. But let me start with you. Start right there that this man passes away in 2011. Cult figure. 70s and 80s, what happens next? 
And thank, thanks, Richard. And thank you for the the warm welcome and the great tee up. Um, yeah. So, so basically, you know, you've gotten us to the point where, where Barry passes away. He's, he's this legendary prankster, but you know, he was also a family man and he had three children, his, his son, Noah, his son, Adam, and his daughter, Aaron, um, and his wife, Margo. And, you know, Barry was just 64 when he passed away. And so obviously, uh, the family was really devastated and it, it left a void in their lives. Um, and so they, you know, they were dealing with that from, from 2011 on. And then, you know, and I, I believe it was February of 2019, Barry's daughter, Aaron gets a, gets a letter in the mail out of the blue. And the letter essentially goes, you know, you don't know me, but, but my name is so-and-so, uh, I am, I am donor conceived. Um, and I am 98% sure that Barry Bremen is my biological father. And oh, by the way, uh, I'm not alone. There are many others out there like me. Uh, and so obviously, you know, Erin is taken aback by this hit. Her mom, Margo, happened to be at the house uh, helping her babysit. So she's there as she and her husband open this letter. Um, you know, her brother, Noah, who's, who's out in California, gets a similar letter on the same day and the family is just floored. And this sort of sets off a, a chain of events for, uh, for the Bremen family. Jeremy, um, you, your dad was friends with Barry Bremen. He is part yes. of this documentary because he was um, a well-known helper of Barry Bremen, helped sort of in many ways uh, uh, pull, let Barry pull off these pranks. I'm going to get to like thinking about this in the 22 construct down the road right. because right. It, Dick, Dick Schaap would be looked very differently if he did this today than he did back then. So let my audience know just your family's relationship with the Bremen family. Yeah, well, you know, um, my dad was working at NBC uh, in 1979 when Barry pulled off the first of his big stunts, the one at the NBA All-Star Game in Detroit. And, you know, this is the kind of thing he loved, you know. You know, it's a wacky story with a guy who seems to have a lot of charisma. So he's like, all right, he used to do this thing. It was like the sportsman of the week every week on the Today Show. And he's like, this is my kind of guy. You know, so they fly Barry in from Detroit to do the Today Show, do the Today Show on set. And they just hit it off. Um, they, they, I mean, my, my dad appreciated his big personality. He was a magnetic guy. And, and he saw in Barry, um, I think, an opportunity, you know, through these kinds of stunts to be irreverent, to have fun uh, in a world of sports, which even back then, I think, was becoming increasingly more about the business side of it and, um, you know, not, not the stuff that um, my dad, you know, uh, necessarily um, got into the business to do. And he did the serious stuff, of course, as well. But. You know, here was Barry, who was this this kind of um, opportunity to have fun with sports again. And they form, in some ways, um, a kind of partnership. Uh, it's, it's a kind of criminal enterprise, actually. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, since neither of them is with us anymore, the extent to which my father facilitated, uh, the extent to which, you know, he... Um, assisted it, it, it's not it's a little murky some of it's unclear but he was his biggest champion that's for sure 
and not to, Richard, not to not to take us too far on a tangent here, but I think Jeremy would tell you that as we sort of went through this process, we, we didn't realize the extent to which no, Dick was didn't. an accomplice to, to Barry until we started digging into some of these old, you know, right. old letters that that Margo has kept over the years. And, and you can see it right there. You know, Barry, how do I get credentials to the U.S. Open? How do I get credentials to the All-Star game? And, and there's there's the whole back and forth. So Right. And, was and this funny. wasn't the OSS. I mean, it wasn't Mo Berg, right? I mean, they were, you know, he was, how was the NBC camera always there with a microphone on him whenever anything <laughs> like this happened? You know, <laughs> You know, this, this, this was more like Watergate than something uh, really sophisticated and polished. And uh, but they 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 had fun with it for a number of years and they became beyond, you know, what this um, professional or uh, amateurish professional relationship was. They became friends and the families became friendly with each other. So, Russell, I want to um, go back to you. Can you still still hear me, Russell? We still good? We're good. All right. All right. Miracles of technology at the moment. This is what is fascinating to me for your role here as a filmmaker. On the one hand, you can do an hour, perhaps even two hours, if you really, really pushed it on Barry Bremen's um, like sort of sports Walter Mitty life. Like you talk to Otis Birdsong and um, who was a, a you know well-known player at the time for um, the Kansas City Kings and Otis helped. Barry Bremen pulled this stunt off. Like the sports element is like pretty hilarious. Like, like you could get, you know, Kareem or whoever just be like, yeah, what'd you think of this guy? Like who came on the court or the all-stars, you know, you obviously George Brett plays a big role in this film. Um, so you could do that, but here's the reality of your um, challenge. You have a, on the other hand, a significant story about a man who is, the biological father through sperm donation of dozens of people. And there's the element of just how these now adults sort of have reacted to learning this. There's the how the Bremen family has reacted to learning this. And then you also have, and you can only get into it so much, the whole wild west of like the 1970s and 1980s in terms of like um, uh, sperm donation and and what is going on in that world just seems so unregulated. Like to me, it was sort of mind blowing that just like how many people might not know who their biological father or mother is. So you as the filmmaker, you got to figure out a way to like make this work in like, you know, a little over an hour so that the audience could digest this. But you also obviously want to tell the story um, honestly. So how did you navigate that? Yeah, it's 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 a good question, Richard. And I've I've gotten it a few times because there's there's these two kind of distinct halves to the story. Um, but I, I think for me, I viewed it as this the story really hinges on the viewer's ability to connect with Barry, right? Like every connecting with Barry informs everything that comes later. Caring about Barry informs everything that comes later and caring about his family. And so you know, we didn't go in with a firm, you know, 50% of it's going to be this, 50% of it's going to be that. It was sort of, let's see what we can find, you know, in terms of archival footage, in terms of people who knew him to help kind of help you understand who Barry was, um, flesh that out as much as we can. And then we've got a great foundation to, to tell you about this insane thing that happened to his family, you know, a after he was gone. And I think you're right, Richard. I think the real challenge here is what you are describing and I didn't know 
you know, how Russell would pull it off, but I think he really did. And it, because it is these, these distinct stories um, and, and you have to know the first to appreciate the second. And there's so many different directions you can go. And one of the things that, you know, I think, you know, Russell captures brilliantly here is, um, you know, that dynamic of these children trying to you know, figure out what this means, you know, they're the questions of nature and nurture. They're the questions of, you know, who are we really? You know, are, are, are we, you know, the results of a chemical process? Are we the results of something else? And, and it's, there's so many layers to it. And it's a phenomenon now that society is dealing with, you know, with 23andMe and the explosion of these sites and the, the ability of people who were donor conceived um, and not just people who are donor conceived, people who you know don't necessarily know who their biological parents are, adopted, and, and, and other situations, and now they're finding out, finding out things that um, you know when they were conceived, when they were born, it seemed impossible they would ever be able to find out. Jeremy, I want to stick with you. Um, you're in this film because you you had you, your father obviously had a significant relationship with Barry Bremen. You you stayed in touch with the family. So you have a relationship with them. And so I want to um, sort of ask you this question in a 2022 construct. Um, we now live in a very, very different time uh, where security concerns are paramount when it comes to professional sporting events. So I wonder again, cause your dad lived in and obviously you and Russell have lived this story, but can you process sort of the notion of in today's world, a guy like going to the NBA All-Star game and like going on the layup line or a guy trying to shag fly balls in the All-Star game. Like to me, when I saw this, as amazing as it is, and it's, you know, he's, Barry obviously was a really great guy and he had fun with it. But literally today, like Barry Bremen would be physically like taken off that field. Who knows what would happen to this guy? He would absolutely be arrested. He probably would do jail time for what he did if not like something because the players or security were really scared, like something really bad could have happened to Barry Bremen. So I just wonder in a, when you, when you look at, you know, we look at this fondly, but I want to ask you just about looking at it in a 2022 construct, because in today's world, you look at this totally different. No, no doubt. It's an entirely different world. And I think there's a line in the piece. I'm not sure if it made the final cut from one of the donor conceived children saying something about like, well, maybe I'll, you know, try to, do what Barry did, gate crash event. I said, don't do it now. Don't try it now. This is not something that is designed for the world in which we live now. And I think obviously, you know, we all live lives um, that have been changed in terms of precautions, security measures since 9-11. But in sports, it's earlier, right? It, the stabbing of Monica Sellis, I think, changed everything in terms of, you know, access on field, access to, yeah, it, by the way, it still happens, right? You know, there, there's only, you know, there's always going to be um, somebody who's determined enough, who is, you know, uh, going to find a way to get into some place where they shouldn't be. But the way that Barry did it, it wasn't, he didn't just arrive. He didn't just show up, you know, for like five minutes. He was there all day in some situations, you know, but it's a different world now. This is, this is pre the stabbing of Monica Sellis. This is pre 9-11. Um, you know, and if you go back and you look at, at, I think contemporaneous accounts, um, you know, nobody said 
this guy's dangerous. He's putting people in a dangerous situation where, you know, security could react and do something that, you know, but you're right. Uh, I'm sure uh, today what he did would be viewed very differently. And it would also be impossible even to get there. I think the layers that you have to go through to get into one of the all-star team locker rooms, the NBA all-star game. Can you imagine he just walked in? (laughs) <laughs> like he just waited for somebody not to be standing at the door, I think, you know, and is that right, Russell? I'm trying to remember. I mean, he was in one. the, he was, he was in the sauna at, in the, you know, in Seattle hiding. Yeah. George Brett, you know, hid him in the sauna, you know, so that the secret service wouldn't find him. You know, they're, they're clearing out the area because Gerald Ford is there. And they're like, Barry, go in the sauna. They won't find you there. You know, and he was so, Bold. I mean, that's what it comes to. It's not. It, it, it's not necessarily they had the credential or that he had the uniform. It's all about the chutzpah. It's all about being able to present yourself as someone who belongs in any situation, and that is definitely an inherited trait. Because, you know, as you said, I know, <laughs> I know the Previn family well, and they're the kind of people who. Oh, you're stuck in a line somewhere. You want to get a table at a restaurant. You want to get you know into a party. They find a way. It's it's a gene. <laughs> Russell, um, uh, it's interesting that Jeremy um, sort of mentioned like reading about it at the time because the the film uh, prompted me in one situation to read the accounts of what had happened. So I went back to the '80s to do it, and the accounts are when Barry Bremen went to the Emmy Awards and he was able to sneak into the Emmy Awards. And he accepted an award for Betty Thomas of Hill Street Blues. By the way, Doris Roberts totally screwed there for Remington Steel. Um, so he, he goes up. He goes up there and accepts this award, and Betty Thomas is there. So it is. I mean, it's fascinating television. First of all, um, I mean, you know, in the awkward uh, levels of Will Smith and uh, Chris Rock, and. So, but that is the moment, and you guys, I thought, did a great job of this in the film, where his wife and his family's like, that's it. Like, this has to end. You, you, you actually ruined someone's moment here. This wasn't fun. This was, you know, many people would sort of say hurtful. I don't think Barry meant to do that, but that was the case. And I encourage any of my listeners to just, like, Google, I think it's 1985 Emmy Awards. Yes. Betty Thomas, yep. Peter Graves is introducing it. I mean, it is, like, so fascinatingly awkward television. You're, you're captivated by this. But Russell, for you, was like, do you do you see that as I do as sort of like the moment that Barry's life sort of turns? Like that's the line where he goes from this sort of, you know, happy-go-lucky sort of sports prankster to, all right, I'm now going to be Barry Bremen businessman and sort of I have a different life after this. Yeah, I think, you know, he, he kind of kept trying to talk himself, right? So the first, the first stunt was in 1979 and by, by 1985, he's trying to come up with bigger and better things, but I had the same reaction to that one that I think you did. It, it just, it's just awkward. You know, he's up there, she's up there, um, you know, and it's, just, it's just uncomfortable. And I think it wasn't long after that before, especially with Margot sort of chiming in that they're like, okay, you know, en- enough is enough. You've had a seven, eight year run of doing this. You know, you've, you've kind of had a, a moment in the spotlight here. And then I think, it started to sort of dwindle down after that point for sure. You know, there were still some things, there were some senior appearances. It wasn't like, you know, entirely cold Turkey as I remember it. But uh, can you imagine that moment, Richard, you know, 
<laughs> with that big audience watching that live event, the yeah. primetime Emmy Awards, and he's up there on the stage and he's stolen this moment. And, 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 and he says, and I'd like to thank Dick Schaap. I mean, my That's poor right. father. <laughs> but he, he, in a sense, he deserved it. I got to say, he, he had earned that moment with Bear. He'd been the silent partner, and now it was the furthest thing from silence. And uh, it wasn't a great night for my dad. And your dad and your dad wrote a he wrote a piece in reaction to it, right? That was kind of the, the only the only the only instance we found of him criticizing Barry was the yeah. piece he wrote after uh, a repudiation, yeah. a full page in Parade Magazine. Yeah, amazing. And you got to remember, at the time, Hill Street Blues. This is this is yeah, this is a show in that three channel universe that's probably watched by twenty five million people a week. I mean, this was a significant thing but but you can imagine our reaction though richard the, when, when russell so, showed me the full clip and it just happens that the cutaway like i think it's the sequence like it's the cutaway like while graves is making the announcement opening the envelope who's sitting on the aisle that they're showing exactly the person you would want david hasselhoff you know, and he's so he's later. so he's so tanned, and he's so like 1979 handsome. It's, it's, it's so unbelievable. Great. You're right. You could not have picked. I mean, thank God it's not like Gopher from the Love Boat. You know what I mean? Or, or Congressman you know, Fred Grandy, or someone like that. Yeah, Fred Grandy. Right. Very good. Good drop there. All right, Russell. Let me go to you, and then Jeremy. I want you to weigh in this as well. To me, the best part of this film is the children. Uh, the donor children of um, Barry Bremen and sort of just like their own self-discovery and learning about their identity. They were incredibly honest with you guys. I mean, this is not a, you know, to learn of who your biological father is, however you perceive what that even means at 45, 42, that's heavy stuff. And I thought a lot of the, not a, a lot, um, everybody who you put on camera was so thoughtful and so honest about like all these different mixed feelings, you were able to film a reunion, and not a reunion. I'm sorry, that's not the right word. Actually, I just screwed up, just like you guys had in the film. It's a meeting of the um, of all the of all the children, or at least a lot of the children who met for the first time. They met the Bremen family. How did you, Russell, as a filmmaker, like kind of want to handle this? Because there's this is pretty for these people. This is like emotional and heavy, and identity is such an important thing to all of us. Like you got to be real ju judicious here in ginger, right? You want to capture this, but you also don't want to be so invasive where the camera is ruining the moment. So how'd you approach this? Yeah. The, the reunion was tricky. And I think we had it sort of, we had it sort of circled on the calendar for a long time as you know, we're, we're in the middle of COVID here. This is going to be one of the few chances where everyone is kind of in the same place at the same time. So we knew the, the reunion's big. Um, the approach is basically try to really sit back and be a fly on the wall for this thing. We got the camera, we got the camera guys in long lenses. Um, we had a list of folks that, you know, politely were like, we, we don't want to be a part of this. Um, you know, some of them were, some of them were half siblings. And so it was like, okay, you know, kind of here are the, here, here's who we're focused on um, throughout this thing. And, and we just try to kind of sit back and capture it as it happened. And, you know, we didn't know that everyone's going to go up there and kind of give a toast and, and talk about their experience. But, you know, you see that in the film, each of the half siblings gets up there and, and talks about what it means to them. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, th the fact that so many of them were so, um, you know, so willing to share their story and so open about it, I think is one of the things that, that, you know, kind of made the project. I think 
for me, going back to sort of like the, the early stages, you know, Jeremy, Jeremy kind of came to me and was like, you're not going to believe this story. And he, he, he started describing it and who Barry was and this thing that, that happened. And it's, it's a lot to wrap your mind around. Um, but I think the moment for me when I was like, okay, we have something here is we, we started to sort of pre-interview all these half siblings. We just had a conversation with them, what, you know, about their story, about their lives. Hmm. And you start to realize a, how interesting their stories are and, and how they overlap and how they're different and be, you know, how much of a character so many of them are and how, and how they seem to sort of, they seem to be, be like Barry in some ways. Um, so yeah, th- you know, getting to know the half siblings was, was, was huge. And then, you know, we haven't mentioned yet, but Lauren Staff, our editor, um, did an amazing job helping us kind of inter interweave all these different stories to sort of tell one, one big story. That, that was, that wasn't an easy task. So she deserves a lot of credit there too. I just think it's so, I was so, I've been fascinated by this phenomenon, reading stories in the papers, you know, and about, you know, people discovering uh, truths that had been hidden from them, you know, things that they couldn't have found out before the advent of this technology and talking to each of the siblings that we did interview about, you know, their different circumstances and everybody's a little bit different. You know, sometimes they knew they were donor conceived. Sometimes this was a surprise to them. Sometimes, you know, they had, you know, a different conception of what their family was. Some of them felt, you know, they, they described it, you know, um, independently to us of each other. Like, I, I felt like I didn't fit in this family, right? And there were interesting nuances. And I don't want to generalize here, but, you know, more of the men that we spoke to seemed to have complicated relationships with the fathers who raised them their social fathers. And that dynamic and all of these different dynamics, I think it's just um, you know, really fascinating to me. And maybe, maybe partly it's because you know, I, I had such a close relationship in many ways with my father and I'm in the same business and all that. And so my identity in many ways is really tied up with my father's identity. And so putting yourself in the shoes of somebody like, whoa, their biological father is somebody they never knew. You know, and they were very, and they were very poignant too, as you know. You know, some of some of the people look, look, the man who raised me, the fa- my father is, you know, the father who raised me, Barry Bremen's, you know, this biological father I never met, sperm donor, very grateful, but you know, I love my dad too. So all those dynamics, and some of them feel strongly that way, some of them felt differently. It's all fascinating to me on the human level. Jeremy, I want to stick with you. Um, you know, I give ESPN a lot of credit here that um, they, they're, you know, they were willing to invest resources mm. and uh, sort of tell this quirky story. Now, let's be honest, Jeremy. I mean, you know, once upon Why a time, start now, like, you would have had the juice. Let's say, of, you would have had the juice of a Mike Greenberg or a Scott Van Pelt or a Stephen A. Smith, but your star has fallen a little bit. So for them to actually even. Uh, <laughs> For them to even invest in this, it's very I think kind, is, uh, no. In all seriousness, so like, so, um, but I guess I, what I would, in all seriousness, ask is that, like, th- did you have to sell, quote unquote, management? Although that's kind of a, not the best word here, because like the the feature in E60 Group is it's a, it's sort of editorial management. It's not like Jimmy Bataro management. But did you have to sell anybody on this story? Because this is not a conventional. Here's a profile of. 
you know, Michael Jordan and the 1997 Bulls. This this is this has a lot of layers and nuance, and quite frankly, has a has a part of this story in terms of the birth donor part that ESPN does not get into. You guys are not covering this on a on any kind of basis, so it's a little tricky for ESPN to. Not tricky. I said I, I appreciate ESPN being like, okay, some of this is not something we cover right. every day, but we think it's a pretty cool story. Well, well so I got to tell you, I mean, my recollection it's been about three and a half years now since um, you know anyone became aware of this since the letter was received by uh, Barry's right. uh, kids that he raised, and you know I, we're we're very close, um, my family to Aaron's family. They live near us. Um, you know, when she told me, you know, I'm like, this is a, this is amazing. We got to do something. And I would think it was within a couple of days that I mentioned it to Andy Tennant, uh, who runs E16 outside the lines. And, and that's my recollection. You know, once I, you know, I'm good at selling these stories, Richard, let's face it, you know, you know, give it at the big sell. Uh, he was like, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. We'll do it. Let's do it. We're going to do it. We're doing it. You know, like, you know, and sometimes you hear that from the boss, you're like, okay, okay, you know, are we really doing it? But, you know, then, you know, uh, Russell got involved almost immediately and we were doing it, but it was, you know, then we got hit by the pandemic um, and, uh, you know, so everything shut down in terms of production for a while, obviously, you know, nobody was traveling, nobody was leaving the house, you know, these kinds of projects, but we started doing it by Zoom. But from the beginning, I think that Andy, uh, you know, and and other people at in our shop could see, you know, this is a bigger story than sports. It's a story. It's a story that transcends sports. It's got this great hook and a central figure who was, you know, a celebrity in in the demi monde of sports. Um, but it's such a bigger story. How could you not want to tell it? And I think Russell's had the same experience, right? Russell, like, if you explain to somebody, like, oh, what are you working on? You tell them one of these things. You tell them this story, they're like, "What? What? Are you kidding me? Like, really?" And and um, I think it it speaks to something in all of us. You know, it's, there's a universality to it, and they saw that, and Andy saw that. Russell, you um you had to be. I mean, not all these pieces um, or not all these docs get on the mothership, get on ESPN. Yours is 7 p.m. Tuesday, July 12th on ESPN, then obviously you'll be able to stream it on ESPN Plus, et cetera. But you have to feel good as a filmmaker that they put this on their their biggest channel because, you know, the, you know, you guys have been around long enough to know that the reality is sometimes you get ESPN News or ESPN2. And so this – somebody obviously liked the piece enough to be like, you know what, we're putting this on ESPN. Yeah, and, we, you know, we're so grateful for the primetime slot and a, and a 90-minute primetime slot at that, I think – as yeah, as Jeremy said, legit. I think our EP Andy Tennant was was pretty all in from the beginning. I think the moment maybe that gave some people pause was when I turned in a first cut that was you know over an hour, and you know typically we're in the twenty to thirty minute range, something like that. Um, but you know once they had a chance to kind of see it and think about it, uh, the support was there to, to to really go for it and and even you know find a find a way to air it on tv and it's you know in this full length so as opposed to paring it down to some shorter length or something like that so it's you know extremely grateful that we, we have the chance to tell it in this format jeremy now you know that russell Danello's um 
I was unaware. Kristen I was entirely unaware. <laughs> who just recently, yeah, rec- just recently directed and produced Dream On about the 1996 U.S. Olympic women's basketball team. That, in my opinion, that's the best documentary huh? I have seen this year, Sports Doc, which I wrote. Great. So, well, what I would say is that Russell seems like a very even keel, nice guy for being right, the second best filmmaker. In I mean, family. you know, I, I can't take sides, obviously. No, I, I, I'm partial to both of them. But, you know, I know that that's, you know, your nature. You like to divide and conquer. So, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I'll uh, play along for the moment. My, Richard, my, my wife. That's nice. Right. Coming, coming, from the, coming, coming from the network that brought the world's first take in other debate shows. Thank you, Jeremy. My wife's more Michael Bay, Richard. Big, big budgets, big advertising. You know, we're more of like an indie <laughs> shop over here. kind of. Right. Know. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. I, I respect that. Right. She's Bruckenheimer. And yeah, right. We're and, artists. Yeah. Or uh, exactly. I'm, I'm nothing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. All right. To finish up, guys, and again, I appreciate this. Jeremy, I should mention to the audience here, because I think this is cool. We are talking to you. You're at Wimbledon right now. You're literally on the you're I'm talking to you. I can see a court yeah, from you, you can your, see that's uh, court 14 right there. Court for yeah, this is a unfortunately it's an audio podcast, but you are on court fourteen, um, and <laughs> you so you think I'd understand I would, the difference after all these years? Yeah, in I know. it should be a video podcast. You know, but it's like, funny. I did Ariel Helwani's podcast recently, and yeah, well, that's a high, but that's I, high. That's I, I never budget. knew it was video as well until it was on YouTube. I was like, oh my god, I sit there for like an hour, you know, hoping I wasn't picking my nose, you know, watching. I'm like, oh my god. So yes. I, I uh, like the all audio. Yeah, I mean, Ariel should, should give you the heads up he on did. it. He did. So I'm I just, sure I want to take, just... yeah. Let me just take a quick advantage because you're there and obviously you've been there for the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, you're there at a time of political upheaval in in, uh, in Great Britain, L- which is unbelievable. A little bit crazy. But yeah, what has the, um, I'm just, I'm really interested in this story and that's the Russians and Belarusians, yeah. uh, you know, sort of how Wimbledon has approached that. When you've been in press rooms and when you have been around the grounds, um, has this been any kind of a uh, significant story? The the fact that the Russians are not there, and in the case of the men's singles draw, really had I think a significant impact in that. And the women, Kyrgios will be in the no. finals. Yeah, and the women's too. Who's who's? I mean, who's to say that if Medvedev was in this draw, he wouldn't he wouldn't have gone far? So you're it's absolutely a, right. It's, it's a huge fact. The All England Club. Yeah, really you know, interesting. I, I did. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's. It's a fascinating um, issue, right? So they made the decision here not to allow players from Russia and Belarus to participate in the tournament. It's not the decision that the USA made with US Open, not the decision that was made at Roland Garros. Um, And there was a lot of pushback, obviously, from the tours, which made this Wimbledon tournament basically officially uh, an exhibition tournament. You know, there are no rankings points at stake. and I think it is one of those issues. I did a, a parting shot a couple of weeks ago about it, how, you know, it's a tough call, right? It's a tough call. You can understand, you know, the Wimbledon um, implications for Wimbledon, they, they received advice from the government. This is what the government wanted them to do. Okay. And, and they feel things differently here, I think, and more acutely in some ways about Russia and Ukraine than we do in the U.S. You know, this is a place where, you know, the oligarchs are so visible. You see them. There have been poisonings over the years, murders taking place on British soil, um, you know, uh, that the Kremlin's been responsible for. 
Um, and so they made a decision that many in the tennis community uh, uh, disagreed with, the tourists disagreed with, but there's no question that, you know, it's a big impact. You're talking about Daniil Medvedev and you're talking about Andre Rublev and you're talking about Arena Sabalenka, Victoria Azarenka. You're talking about big stars and you have to wonder, you know, of course, what the impact uh, would be. You know, I, I'd love to be in a position now to interview Daniil Medvedev about what's going on. You know, a final is going to be taking place. It's going to be, I don't know when this is airing, but obviously it's going to be Kyrgios versus the winner of Djokovic Nori. And, um, it's really interesting. You know, when we were kids, Richard, we're about the same age. Of course, we had those two Olympics in a row um, in which there were massive boycotts. 1980, the U.S. and much of the West didn't go. Remember, Great Britain did go in, to Moscow in 1980, interestingly. That's right. And then in 1984, the retaliatory boycott from Moscow and Cuba and some others in the Eastern Bloc, but not all of them. Romania went. Um, and, and so um, there's a little deja vu there, too. Last one, Russell. I want to end with you. The um, the when I watched your piece, one of the things I thought about, and I imagine you know who this is, but there was a very, very famous documentary series called Up, which uh, I think Michael Abted is the 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 producer, uh, the director, director or, or certainly yeah. like the point person here. And so, um, you know, this he he followed this the uh, this group of people throughout the course of their entire life. It's an incredible documentary of sort of like, I guess, really examining nature versus well, right. nature. It's a series of documentaries. It's every yours. seven years checking in with them, the same group. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're right, Jeremy. I appreciate you explaining that better. And so my initial thought with this, and I wonder if you and Jeremy have talked about this, but like I would love to see 10 years from now, like what has happened to the 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 donor children of Barry Bremen? Are they still in touch? Um how has knowing this new family impacted their lives? I think you have something here that really has another chapter left, whether that's for ESPN or whether that's elsewhere. And I wondered, again, as the filmmaker here, if you've, if you've thought about this, because this, you know, a lot of times in sports, like you do a story, there is no, that's it. Like the story's over in sports, the not going to be another chapter. But in this one, 10 years from now, five years from now, it could be really interesting to check in on these guys again. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. And I think that was that was sort of a challenge that was tough to wrap your head around as we were going through this, that you want to be able to spend a ton of time with, with each of them. Um, there's just so many and logistically, you know, it, it's, it's tricky. We, we, you know, we, we kind of did the best we could uh, in the time frame that we had to, to kind of get to know them. But, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that's so unique is, you know, they've all wanted to get to know each other. They've all wanted to connect. You know, in a lot of cases, these you know people who who find out they're related this way don't want anything to do with each other. Uh, they're going on ski trips. They're yeah. you know they're they're traveling together. Uh, so, I, you know, I can only imagine there's going to be more to their story as time goes on, and we'll definitely keep tabs on it. Uh, you know, to see to see where it goes. All right. Well, I I loved it. I thought it was great. It's just interesting when you see something um, within the sort of the 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 sports media or sports television. Um, you know, ecosystem that just is a different kind of story and just has like a, a significant plot twist that has some humanity to it and some importance. Uh, at least I can only speak for me. It really, it, 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 it hit home. 
So I, I hope, I don't know how you guys are judged on this stuff anymore. I, to me, you should be, be judged on putting out a quality product, which this is. But obviously, there's viewership and rating stuff. So I, I do honestly hope it does well. The Great Imposter in Me debuts Tuesday, July 12th at 7 p.m. on ESPN. Then you can catch it on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, Russell Danello, a longtime producer and director at ESPN. Jeremy Schapp, a longtime host, reporter, rock and tour at ESPN. Jeremy, enjoy Wimbledon. I mean, again, the, the boondoggle assignments continue. It seems like in every decade. I've been very blessed, Richard. Yeah, no kidding. I have. Good assignments. Good Russell, assignments. congratulations on your film. Send my best to Kristen. Uh, Thank you and, very much. Um, and Thanks, I Rich. I really, we really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, thank you so much. In all seriousness, it's uh, I know I, I know these guys, so I'm joking with them a little bit. But in all seriousness, it's really a terrific piece of work. And so anybody listening to this, uh, I usually don't bullshit you when it comes to this these kind of things. And this is legit. This is the real deal. Russell, Jeremy, thank you very much. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, certainly my thanks to Patrick Antonetti for. Uh, pulling this off because uh, the internet issues were crazy. Uh, thank you to Jeremy Schapp who joined us from Wimbledon. Thank you to Russell Danello as well. I hope people check um, check this out. It's it's really a fun film and honestly, um, absolutely worth your time. The uh, the great imposter in May debuts Tuesday, July twelfth, seven p.m. on ESPN and then ESPN Plus after that. Uh, podcast before this. Hopefully you'll check it out. A conversation with Monica McNutt of ESPN and um, her really, really interesting career arc. Um, she's a row on McNutt, and so uh, I enjoy talking with her. Did an emergency podcast with Andy Staples, the college football writer at The Athletic on USC and UCLA, heading to the Big Ten and what that means for you as a, as a media viewer and consumer. TJ Quinn discussing his reporting on Brittany Griner. I think uh, you will find that interesting. How to cover historic sports team with Lindsey Adler, of the athletics she covers the yankees and we did uh, some formula one stuff with adam stern of sports business journal and then before that definitely worth checking out 63 minutes with jimmy pataro the chairman of espn who um i think informed listeners of uh, of a lot of things or a lot of espn's thinking at the moment so check out that stuff at the archives if you like this podcast please leave us a five-star review and uh and a nice note that's how the uh podcast continues i guess you could leave us a one-star review but uh yeah you may not be seeing me <laughs> too much longer if that happens but uh but appreciate the support for this podcast uh, uh over the many many years we have been doing this all right thanks everybody cadence 13 thank you to patrick and today again can't thank him enough for pulling this one off and thank you for listening we'll see you soon on the sports media podcast